Here's a special obscenity warning for you parents out there. Camp is over, but school has yet to begin. What the frick are you going to do with all those kids? We might have to swear about it. This has been your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the best Jewish podcast that you're listening to right now. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Shalom to you. Shalom to you. And by deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Peace. It also means hello and goodbye. I'm, yeah, I'm saying shalom, but I'm saying it as goodbye. <laughs> Our Jew of the Week is writer Andre Asaman, whose novel Call Me By Your Name was the basis for the recent movie. And our Gatwa, Gentile of the Week, is wine expert Kevin Bigos. We all need to catch up. It has been, um, it's been a full week and, and, and much, much water under the bridge. Stephanie, has it been a good week in Butnick land? It's always a good week in Butnickland. I do have to say, I'm going to make you guys really, really jealous when I tell you what I'm doing this weekend. We'll bite. What are you doing this weekend? I am visiting a farm on the North Dakota, oh. Minnesota border. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> to spend the weekend with Molly Yeh, a friend of the show, oh, and her husband. Lord. Ben and I are going. I will be bringing, we got some brand new recording equipment thanks to our donor drive, and I am bringing it with me to test it out. First of all, donor drive, your, your shekels at work. At work. J. Crew. That's right. Second of all, would you be bringing back like lots of pastries? Maybe. I don't know. I, I'm like, I'm just a guest. I'm just happy to be there. If you're one of the listeners who's joined our show in the month or two since we last talked about Molly Ye, she's been on the show several times. Uh, she's a food writer and blogger, cookbook author extraordinaire. She is a Juilliard trained musician who moved with her husband to his ancestral farm in North Dakota where they farm sugar beets sugar beets thank you but anyway she's had she has this food network show so she's really really blowing up so I will maybe if listeners like want me to ask her anything while I'm there I'll be on the farm with them I'll be in the kitchen and so like I don't know if you're curious about anything want like tips for how to make your challah extra moist I don't know like what it, you know <laughs> send them on so we're building up to the the really important news of the Jews uh, but but in the less important news of the Jews Seth Rogen is the new voice of Vancouver's uh public transit system, uh, buses, subways, etc. We'll hear uh, Seth Rogen's voice giving them announcements about a transit etiquette, according to the Vancouver Sun. Hey, TTC customers, fellow Canadian Seth Rogen here. I can't believe I'm actually going to say this, but stop clipping your fingernails on the TTC. It's gross. Stephanie, do you have any news of the Jews for us? I do. So every summer, what I really like is when Basically, like resort towns get a little anti-Semitic. <laughs> Last year, do you guys remember this? Last happens. year in in Switzerland, there was a, a hotel that basically like instructed Jewish guests to to shower before entering the pool and like not to always access the refrigerator. And someone basically was like, that was because there's kosher keepers and they do access, like they give them access to a different refrigerator. Whatever it was, there's a new one. <laughs> Where are we not going this year? Well, it's still Switzerland. (laughs) Oh, God bless Switzerland. Okay. And this is from JTA. Swiss tourism official complains about behavior of Jewish guests. And this is in Davos. Is that how you say that? That fancy area of Switzerland, which apparently has a big Orthodox-like population over the summer who go there to the resorts. So Rito Branchi, who heads the tourism office of the Davos, Davos Skiing Village, basically sent a letter to the Jewish community there, said Jewish guests visiting Davos in summer. And it basically says that, like, The playgrounds are being taken over by large groups and there's no room for small families. And there was apparently during two tours at a local cheese factory, quote, Jewish guests held their noses, disturbing some of the other participants. So like basically they didn't like the smell of cheese. So this is interesting. I was once I was giving a talk at a synagogue in uh, New Jersey uh, sometime in the past year. And a guy came up to me afterwards and somehow we ended up talking about 
I forget what town it was. I'm sure it was part of our News of the Jews, but there was a town uh, in upstate New York somewhere that was had increasingly large Orthodox populations, and they were trying to pass one of those ordinances to keep them out. The Reform Jews and the secular Jews were trying to keep out the Haredi Jews, and the way they were trying to do it was by basically harassing them in the playgrounds when they came— with their large families, like having rules, no families of more than five kids or no family, you know, is basically, you know, like in when they try to keep African-American families out with like anti-barbecuing resolutions, which was something that happened in Brooklyn, you know, a couple decades ago, there was a story where barbecuing, barbecuing became code for, for people of color, which was, which was horrible. So this guy came up to me and he was a Jewish guy and he was saying, no, but it's for real. Like it's going to drive our property values down and, and normal people can't use the playgrounds. And, and what if you're just one of these normal families with two kids and you want to use the playground and a family comes in with 11 kids and they and I was just like look man like actually and was this a Jewish person actually, this, of course it was 17 children right. myself yeah <laughs> of course it was a Jewish person it's always if it, it, it's not a Swiss or a Belgian it's a Jewish person right. making this claim and honestly nothing gets me angrier than if you're just if you're going to be an anti-semite just have the Jones to just come out and insult my big hooked nose, but don't make it be about like you come in with your large families and your your, and your n- Arab is going to drive down. Yeah, it's like what's happening in the what happened in the Hamptons. Yeah, what's like been happening. you come in with your weird superstitions and your rituals, and if only you would just you know get a nose job and have two kids and uh, you know in a nice arts and crafts cottage by by the bay. I mean, I I really because then it's merging the anti-Semitism with classism and snobbery and all that stuff. And you know what? Jews should descend on Davos and walk into their smelly I think cheese they shops do once a year, right? <laughs> and by the way, I hate smelly cheese as well. Like that could be that could be me. First they came for them. Next they will come for me when I walk into one of their smelly oh, cheese I shops and and hold my nose. First they came cheese. over their smelly cheese. First they came for cheese. the brie, but I said nothing because I didn't like brie. <laughs> then they came for the rock fort. But when they came there. <laughs> they came for the camembert. No one left to speak for it. Obviously, we're building to the very, very big news of the Jews this week. But, but does either of you have anything else? I have something yeah. that puts the triple X back in orthodox. <laughs> uh, this is a study out of out of out of Jerusalem by a, a perfectly named rabbi called uh, Hananel Ross. Just such a cool name. So Hananel Ross conducted uh, what is being touted as the first ever large-scale study of the sexuality of Jewish religious men. And I want to... I have some gay friends who would claim to have conducted that same study. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's correct. I want to read to you uh, one, one small paragraph from the study. It says Rabbi Ross, um, opposite to what everyone may think, um, not only do religious men really uh, feel a lot during uh, their copulation, but they're primarily interested in equality in the bed. This is why the more present the woman is, the better it is for them. They want mutual pleasure. Uh, The less into it the woman was, the more pain they seemed to feel. And he goes on to to address this by saying, uh, so first of all, like I read this as like, oh, so religious guy makes a survey about religious guy's sexuality and be like, we are impossibly good lovers because <laughs> we care. We care only <laughs> about the woman's pleasure. Like you yeah, have conducted surveys like that before, uh, but then he goes on to actually come up with a very interesting theory, which has to do with masturbation. He's like, a lot of these people have not masturbated previously, and therefore their only yardstick to how good things are is not only their own feeling, but also their partners. Kind of makes sense to me. 
I feel a lot of mail coming about this. You know, the mail that I want on this is from people who have slept with very religious Jewish men and secular Jewish men who can who have a sample size because I'm not J. Crew. <laughs> a sample size? Does a sample size matter in this case? Oh, I'm sorry, I had to. You had to. Okay, so the big news of the Jews this week. Anyone who's been following the Jewish sphere knows. Paul Ryan went on Henry Louis Gates' show on PBS where they find their roots, finding your roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. This basically is just a show where people find out they're like a little bit Jewish every six months. That's right. I know other things happen on the show too. Sometimes they find out they're a little bit black. Uh, Paul Ryan discovers he's 3% Jewish. Wow. Basically. No, no, I do not support this singing. Here's the thing. So obviously this this raises the question, do we, is he good for the Jews or not good for the Jews? Paul Ryan, um, as the world's leading Jewish podcast, uh, as, as the best in on... As the bait in on the world's leading Jewish podcast, we are here uh, to tell you um, that uh, we are actually putting you out on waivers to be traded. Uh, for those of you who remember Dave Chappelle's brilliant racial draft, where people get to trade away, you know, the African-Americans got to trade away O.J. Simpson and get someone better. And um, So we're trading 3% of Paul Ryan. It's not worth much. It's not worth much. The question is, who can we... So the question is, if we were to trade him, uh, trade that 3% away, can we send the 3% of Paul Ryan back to the Catholics and get a little bit of Father Jim Martin. So now we're doing like like futures uh, Yeah, we're trading. in futures trading. <laughs> okay. I want either Father Jim Martin or I want Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos. So everyone's a little bit Jewish. We're a little bit Jewish. No, you're not Jewish at all. It doesn't matter who's Jewish. Suggesting that you have to be sure takes God. Our Jewish guest this week is Andre Asiman. He is the author of several best-selling books, including the 2007 novel Call Me By Your Name. His 1995 memoir, Out of Egypt, detailed his childhood growing up in Alexandria. Welcome, Andre. Thank you for having me. So you're like a very well-known, you're a popular and celebrated writer, but you basically shoot to a new level of fame this summer when Call Me By Your Name comes out as a film. What is Was it fun to suddenly... Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's actually quite joyful because you see something you've written on 109th Street on a very torrid summer in 2005 and you ignored it and it was published and it got well reviewed and that was the end of that. And suddenly 10 years later, it explodes. It becomes world famous. Everybody sort of sees it. Everybody talks about the peach scene. And uh, at some point, you know, you, you, you say, okay, fine, I've done this. This is all because of me. Now can I move on? And and, and I do want to move on, of course. And now if the you next walk book... around saying, I invented Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> that was me. Well, I gave him that speech and I gave him and I gave the father the speech, too. And that was fun. I mean, it's very nice to have done something like this. But, you know, as an author and as any actor will tell you, it's the same thing. You're always worried about the next part. The one that you're doing now or that has been done is good. It's very fun. It's a lot of fun. It's really fun to be walking down the street and ask people for direction. And suddenly they turn to you and they say, great book. <laughs> Do you get recognized on the street now? Sometimes, yeah. That, but because I always say there's there are very few writers who get recognized on you know Stephen King if he leaves Maine probably yeah. doesn't get recognized on the street. But on the Upper West Side, but near oh, the Hungarian yeah. pastry shop, you're oh, yeah, yeah, you're, I mean, you're King, you're John Grisham. I'm John Grisham. That's right. I wish I could write his books, but that's okay. And what is it like? I mean, you wrote this book in 2005. It came out in 2007. Now all of a sudden, Army Hammer is playing one of the characters, Timothy Chalamet, as we said. 
are you just like, I'm so over this? Is it hard to revisit something that you've... Yes, it is hard to revisit it. On one hand, it, it just collages on everything you've done. In other words, I don't remember writing the book. Uh, I remember the faces, but the faces are of Chalamet and Army Hammer. Um, I don't I don't recall much of any. People ask me questions about the book, and I haven't read the book in years. And so I say, was that in the book? Or was it in one of the... And they say, yes, it was. And they get very upset if I don't know the answer. So I have to sort of pretend that I remember sometimes. That's interesting. So, so, so your, your kind of emotional wherewithal or, or, or like technique is, is basically to compartmentalize as much as you can. You finish the novel and these people are gone? They're not gone. They reverberate and they resonate and they're still there and uh, they never go away. But they're asleep, you know. They're, they're not exactly alive and throbbing as the ones that you're creating right now, so... One of the things that happened when the movie came out was it was alternately celebrated and and not always celebrated by some gay critics and gay writers. And, you know, who is this heterosexually married person making this gay movie? And is it a gay movie? And did you follow that debate at all? Did you care or did you just, you know, say, look, I'm excited that it's getting read? Well, I don't follow everything. I don't know how to follow everything. That's one of the things that I don't know. I've had, I mean, I twit, tweet, but not that often. And I have a Facebook, but I don't post things. I don't read things. But you, you get wind of what's going on because I have three sons. They all read, they all tweet, they all do those things. And they tell me, did you know that so-and-so and such-and-such? And, such? and so I, I kind of know, but I don't focus. Uh, but I'm aware of the fact that, you know, that there's a, the basically people say I'm in the closet. I'm not in the closet. I'm gay. I'm not gay. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm so tired of that conversation, actually. I was actually less interested in that conversation. I don't really care if you're gay or not. I was more interested in the in the debate around, I mean, some people think that if you're not, these days, you know, who are you to write to write a gay Cultural romance? appropriation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm aware of appropriation. Um, of Does course, that infuriate you? Totally, totally. And, and in the sense that I think that cultural appropriation, there's no such thing. An actor, a writer, a person who's doing art in any fashion should be able to pass for anything he wants to or she wants to. Men have written about women. Women have written about men. Uh, a lot of gay people have played straight roles. Why can't straight men play gay roles and so on and so forth? It is a tiresome debate. It's made for people who really don't like to think too much. So let's talk. Let's talk Jews because the "Call Me by Your Name," you know, is is a sort of a gay love story, but it also is like a very Jewish story, more so yeah. I think in the book than really gets in the movie. But we have Army Hammer, who's this like strapping American guy, and he wears his like shirts totally like half unbuttoned and has like this big Jewish star. And then we have Ilio, Ilio, who is played by Timothy Chalamet, but he's an Italian. You know, he's sort of like a European Jew, and and he has a Jewish star, but hasn't worn it because his mother told him not to. And so, part of it is he actually starts wearing it because he sees someone proudly just just having a different relationship with Judaism. And I'm so curious because you're like, where do you fall? Because you're from Egypt. I mean, where? Which one are you? Are you? Uh, no, I was. I refuse to be bar mitzvahed. I seldom go to temple. In fact, I go to more churches than I go to temples. I'm a very lapsed, lapsed, lapsed Jew. There's no question. I mean, everybody knows this. Uh, I don't like religion. I don't pray. I don't do any of that stuff. On the other hand, I'm very Jewish, and I realize it. And my whole sense of irony could not be but Jewish. And I and I am a Jew in every sort of conceivable cliche stereotypical manner. I look like a Jew. I walk like a Jew. I I, I mean I can keep going. Okay? Quack like a Jew. Yeah, the whole I, thing. I am a Jew. You know. Do you but, use aluminum foil or saran wrap? 
Uh, <laughs> Our listeners once had a debate about which is more Jewish. Do you have a, a position on that? No, because saran wrap does not let you breathe at all. That's, that's yeah, that's yeah. where I said Jews use aluminum foil, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> QED? Q, QED. So you're an Egyptian Jew. Right. I think that not a lot of people know Egyptian Jews. Can you tell us a little bit about that community and how you ended well, up? Well, there are many communities in Egypt of Jews. There's the, you have your basic Ashkenazi Jews who have come from Poland and Russia and so on and emigrated to Egypt. Egypt was a good place to emigrate to. You didn't have to go to America. You went to Egypt. You could make money much faster in Egypt. And the lifestyle was fantastic. Then you had um, what you might call Balkanic and um, Turkish Jews. And you had also... Arab Jews, Egyptian Jews, autochthonous Jews, in other words, they've been there for two millennia. Since Pharaoh. Yes, yeah. since Pharaoh. Those were the ones that never crossed the Red right. Sea because they were too afraid. Okay? <laughs> see, see you later, man. We'll, we'll just uh, hang out here. Right. We'll get through this. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, you'll come back anyway, yeah, and we did come fine. back, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but the, and so I belong to the, the, my family was really Turkish Jews. And my grand, one of my grandfathers was an Aleppid Jew. And they all made, the whole family made fun of him because he was an Aleppo, from Aleppo. I mean, who cares about the Syrian Jews? They were Turkish Jews. They were very proud of being Turkish Jews, not realizing that it was as ridiculous as anything else. But they made a lot of money very fast, and they lived a very nice, multinational, multi-religious, because a lot of them married into Christian families. And um, and so I grew up in this very cosmopolitan, multinational, multi-everything, open-minded society of people who happen to be Jewish. Why did you leave? Uh, I didn't have a choice. I was kicked out of Egypt because I was Jewish. So if I couldn't remember what was happening to me, this was definitely a reminder. Uh, they kicked out all the Jews from Egypt. So what? how old were you when you had to leave? I was 14 years old when I was expelled from Egypt with my family. And where'd you go? We went to Italy because we were Italian citizens. This was something that you could actually become in Egypt. Um, you became an Italian because you couldn't be French and you couldn't be English because they had already been kicked out of the country after 1956. So it, it had become a, a, from a totally cosmopolitan society. It became essentially an Egyptian country where everybody spoke Arabic and fewer and fewer people spoke French. Do you have a kind of, you know, residual affection for it, for Egypt? In the back of my memory somewhere, yes. Um, Do you visit often? Never. I visited only once because the New York Times sent me there and I was going to write a piece right. on, on going back to Alexandria after the book Out of Egypt had mm -hmm. come out. So it made perfect sense. And I got there and after about, you know, three hours I had visited Alexandria. I knew exactly nothing much had changed and I wanted to come back to New York. <laughs> like I miss the Upper West Side. Yes. Right. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like I need my espresso in my gym. So I, I want to get back to uh, to our cultural moment which is something that I know you and I share a, uh, a, a fascination, a morbid fascination with. Your sensibility as a writer is, um, if, if I may, you know, kind of so rudely portray it, it's a sort of like a, a, a high-minded modernist sensibility that really draws from, you know, the, the, the Proustian source of, of all that is good and holy about contemporary literature. 
when you read what's going on uh, around the novels, the fascinations, the themes, d- do you feel very lonely or do you feel you're, you're a man of your time? No, I don't feel like um, that I'm a man of my time for many reasons because I'm not in my time. Uh, it's not that I try to be, it's that my sensibility is such that I belong probably 1920 or 1930. That's what I feel. Yeah. That's, that's where I truly belong. But then if I were back then, I'd belong in, 19, in 1880. <laughs> you know, I, I always find a way to displace myself. You're always 80 years too late for the party. I know, I know. Or, you know, maybe 80 years ahead of time. Right. I mean, you don't know about that. Um, but I don't, I don't read contemporary writers. I seldom do. I read them when they send me their books for blurbs, and I will leave through them. And so I'm always aware of you, what... You have no peers who you love to read? Friends, living, living writers? I have who, lots of friends who are writers. Uh, I don't read them. Uh, among reasons, that's why you're friends. That's exactly why I don't read them because I don't want to think less of them once I've read them, and I find it very difficult to read contemporary writers because I don't like what they do. I don't think that they work hard enough at sort of chastening their prose, and I think the prose has to be perfect, otherwise, don't even publish it. And I think they're all very sort of, how shall I say, they bungle the job. So, can you give us like a reading list? What should be? Who should we be reading? Oh, people who are dead, mostly. I discovered very late in life two writers that I think are absolutely glorious. One is Pessoa, who is a Portuguese writer, and I think he'd written one of the best books of the century. Um, then the other one is Edith Wharton, who I discovered very late in life. And I'm saying, oh, my God, what a genius. Why wasn't I reading this? Uh, and I, I'm always willing to open up to some amazing mistake on my part, but I'm seldom... Do you feel in principle, couldn't there be good writers working today, or is there something... Oh, there uh, has to be. There has to be. You're just not interested in finding them. I, I found one that I thought was probably the best writer of the from 1960 on, and he died. And, and he's a German writer, W.G. Sebald, whom I think is an, an amazing writer. So occasionally, yeah, I want to be enchanted. It's not that I refuse to be. It, but you have to sell me. You have to persuade me that you are... I, I only want geniuses, not just secondary. I feel exactly the same way. But do you think that that this kind of like out-of-timeness, do you think it kind of... Um, is it a good crucible to kind of make your prose and your art... Uh, you know, hotter? Or does it just feel like a lonely desert where you're just, you know, meandering about with no one to talk to? Well, I felt that way when I was writing out of Egypt. I felt I was alone. I was writing in a style and in a prose and in a language that wasn't even mine. So I, I was very much out of sorts and out of my immediate entourage. Uh, it was so well received that I was given some a sense of a boost. Okay, I'm writing this kind of prose that nobody writes uh, about things that nobody really wants to talk about. And people seem to like it. So I'm okay. And it's very important for any writer, especially a young writer, to feel that, you know, I'm okay. I've gotten some recognition and not just from my mother, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and it, it helps a lot. But then you have to continue doing what you do. And you always sort of fording ahead in unknown territory. I never write, I hope I don't, write the same thing time and time again. Even though when I read it, I said, yeah, that's something that I could have written and nobody else. People quote me sometimes and they send me a quote without telling me that it's a quote. And I'll say something, and this sounds very really pretentious. Uh, I will say, oh my God, this was really well written. Who wrote this? <laughs> it was me. I did it. So, Your son, Alex, is a tablet contributor and friend of the show. He writes a great book column and a movie column for tablet. And I emailed him and I was like, give me the dirt. What should I ask your dad? He's coming on the podcast. He did not write back. Oh, he did not. For better or worse. I don't know. Which I don't know. I'm not going to read too much into that. But so like... 
can you give us some dirt on him? <laughs> he clearly has enough respect to not do it to you. Like, give us a window uh, no, into, he, like... You should see what he calls me face-to-face. -face. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a different thing. I know we get along. I think we have a wonderful relationship. And I, I taught him one thing, and I taught my three sons the same thing. I said, if you're going to write, okay, um, you need to, what I call, subordinate. In other words, don't write short sentences, subordinate your sentences. I have many subordinate clauses. You like clauses? Yes. Yes. Because if you have a subordinate clause... You're a comma guy. I'm a very much of a comma guy, and you, which means that your thinking is dilated as opposed to constipated, okay? See, but then you come to America. This is exactly what I mean. You come to America, and you go to, you know, journalism school, and every professor you ever have is like, right, short, concise, short, concise oh, terse sentences. Point. Like, what I is the point well, of that? That's not writing. Uh, That's they're living under telegraph. the spell of Strunk and White. And oh, they're, God, they're, I've written about Strunk and White. They're yeah. living yeah. Under, I hate them. Yeah, That's it's the elements of style. The greatest like, damage book. to the English. I agree. I totally yeah. Yeah, that's like the first book you have to buy in any journalism yeah, class. They were colluding. Class. Strunk and White were colluding. It was a particular 1920s moment. They were they were under the spell of Hemingway. They're colluding than, with Hemingway. They're colluding, colluding with little with... sentence. What is it? I mean, do you read your son's work? I mean, to know that you're sort of like. Yes, yeah. I read his stuff. Mm -hmm. I always read his stuff. He's the one contemporary reader Andre reads. <laughs> 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 well, I have to. I want to, actually. I want to. And, and so I you're a tough judge. You spare no criticism, I hope. I, and that's why he never shows me anything he's written before it's published. Fantastic. Um, and which is a big mistake because sometimes I said, you know, you could, you've repeated that same word three times. You know, I said, well, they didn't catch it. Yeah. I said, well, I did. So I, I want to uh, briefly, before we end, touch on a, on a shared obsession of ours. And, and, you know, if I say it, I don't think anyone will listen to me. If you say it, uh, maybe people go out and, you know, be moved to action. Could, could you tell our, our listeners why they should drop everything they're doing right now and go read Proust? Oh, my God. Be, well, uh, because it's magical, because it will change them. It will change them into better people. And I hate the idea that a book can change you because I don't know exactly what that does. That means uh, what Proust can do is basically tweak and recalibrate your orientation vis-a-vis -vis life and people. He tells you exactly how to think about things and how to think and perceive things about people that you normally know, but you haven't quite articulated them to yourself. And we all go through Proustian moments at least once a day where we say, oh my God, of course. Before we say farewell, I just want to say that I have read your books and I love them, but but I'm particularly charmed by the piece you did for New York Magazine about five objects that you oh, adore yeah. because it's so wonderfully um, foppish and snooty and, and unstylish for a writer to say, I really love fountain pens and perfumes and coffee makers. And it, it's sort of you saying, like, I'm an aesthete, you know, chew on that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, because I mean, I put my bicycle down, but then they said your bicycle is not on sale any longer. So that's okay. <laughs> but you know, that's where Alex comes in. My son Alex, he gave me advice. He says, "Don't you like this?" Because I said, "What do I like? I don't like anything." Uh, he says, "How about this? How about that?" I said, "Yes, you're right. I'm going to put that down." So, what he, coffee maker did you recommend? No, the coffee maker was my thing. Uh, that, that's mine. That's definitely mine. He recommended the the Bialetti Mocha Express, made in Italy, nine cup stove top espresso maker. It's a beautiful wow. thing. It's a beautiful thing. Under Asma, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. The the books, some of your books have been Call Me By Your Name, which has been made into a movie, I assume, out on, on uh, streaming services by now. But people should read it first. And and also, Out of Egypt, When's the, what's the next work? What are you working on? What's coming to fruition? Well, it's come, one book is already sort of being edited, and it's a collection of essays. 
And there's a novel that I'm finishing. I have to finish by October 1st because otherwise I can't teach. So. And, and much to my dismay, you can be followed on Twitter or Facebook. <laughs> I can be. I can be. Yes, true. <laughs> I'm inviting you to join the off social media crowd and, and give, me, give me solace. Thank you for being our Thank two you. of the week. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Oh, to see without my eyes The first time that you Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We're still going back into the mailbox for some letters that came in a month or two ago, some some chestnuts that are really, really beautiful that we didn't get to, like this one. Dear Unorthodox, I work for my dad, and I was having some interpersonal issues with him. I see a therapist already, so I brought him along for a few sessions to try to work out our issues. One of the things the therapist picked up on immediately was our habit of interrupting each other. Some of our interrupting each other was not, as you have put it on your show, quote, cooperative overlapping. But it brought my consciousness to my general habit of interrupting others, often cooperatively. This troubled me because I didn't realize that this cooperative overlapping was part of my Ashkenazi culture. And so I didn't have language to explain to my therapist why she might be going too hard on me about my tendency to interrupt my dad, her, my husband, my friends, and so on. But now I do. So thank you. Your show rocks. Keep it up. Yours, Rita. P.S. My dad and I are getting along better now. I love the idea that we pay therapists and then interrupt them. That is like the most Jewish thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Leo, I live in rural mid-Missouri and would love to have a mezuzah on my front door in my home. I've read multiple opinions on mezuzot on non-Jewish homes, and the majority consensus seems to be that it's a no-go for reasons of halachic law or for a spectrum of reasons ranging from gentle concern to outright contempt for how a non-Jew might treat the Torah scroll inside. I get it. I understand. I am other. I'm not a Christian. I was once upon a time in my teen years, but that didn't work out so well. My time served was in a Southern Baptist church. In college, I fell into a deep and unrequited love for Judaism. 20 years, three kids, one ex-husband later, when I was definitely not looking, I met an amazing Jewish man with whom I am deeply, madly, and completely in love. He tells me I am his beshert. He tells me, based on the way I see and process the world, prioritize God, family, and social justice, that I am more Jewish than many of the Jews he knows. Your conversion episode was powerful. When Liel described conversion as the soul returning home, I burst into tears in my car. I feel like I'm living in a liminal space. I'm not a Jew, but I'm actively making an effort to live more Jewishly. While I have been benevolently accepted by my beloved's family, I'm still very much other. I feel tribeless. Despite wanting to be a Jew by choice, or better yet, a Jewess, I am aware that even with conversion, my experience will not translate to understanding his experience of being born and raised Jewish. I still feel stuck in between somehow, one foot in, one foot out, both beloved and other. 
If you lose the pledge drive situation, Stephanie, feel free to take a road trip to Missouri with your new mezuzah. I can't solve the halakhic issue of whether I should or shouldn't have one, but I'd be happy and grateful to care for yours in your stead. You can call my home your country home. It's really lovely here. We could solve two problems with one mezuzah. Warmest regards, a listener in Missouri. I love this so much. I think we have a deal. <laughs> you could outsource your mezuzah. I love it. It will be your spiritual farm team. That's this right. Is, I mean, I just think um, it's so – I think – no, no, this is – I'm being real here. I think we take for granted our Judaism a lot. And to hear from someone who is journeying toward – I mean, it's just so moving and, and so thoughtful and so meaningful. And I'm so glad that we could, you know – I absolutely, yeah, any, yeah. And, and this is yet another opportunity to say to anyone out there who's listening, whatever comfort, whatever joy, whatever meaning you find in this tradition, it is yours. It mm-hmm. is yours to embrace. It is there for you. It is your home. If it calls out to you, walk towards it. If you want to send us a letter, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. You can also ask for our newsletter. You can also send a question to ask unorthodox and we might answer it on the show or in our regular column at tabletmag.com. But now, a final letter. Hi, guys. Love you all and loved your last episode about the Yiddish Fiddler. It was amazing. I went and bought tickets for my nine-year-old grandmother, my mother, and me to all attend together in September. Can't wait. But I also feel compelled to clarify something about my donation note. I am one of those people who voted against Stephanie. Not because I don't love you, Stephanie, but because of the mezuzah thing. And saving Stephanie's soul is the least of my concerns, and pretty goyish sounding, like with strong evangelical inflections. I take issue with my motivations being painted in that light. Rather, I want Stephanie to get a mezuzah because living in New York City in 2018, we have the privilege and blessing that we can have one without legitimate fear of the danger of the Gestapo, Cossacks, Inquisitor, or white supremacist variety. And I think it's important that we claim that privilege and that we wear it proudly on the doorposts of our homes and not hidden inside. Like you, Stephanie, I grew up during the 80s and 90s in the Long Island Jewish bubble. Jericho, not Great Neck, but same thing. Where we grew up, everyone pitied the few non-Jewish kids who didn't rack in the bat mitzvah gifts. Vastly more homes had menorahs instead of Christmas lights in December. It wasn't until college that it sank in that we are indeed a minority. And it was with pride that I then hung a mezuzah on my dorm room to declare my differentness, to embrace a tiny part of being a visible minority. And yes, it was safe to do so. Now living in NYC like you, Stephanie, I have a mezuzah hanging on the front door of my apartment. I'm pretty secular, so no, I don't kiss it. I usually don't pay it any mind. But knowing that Jews all over the world hang mezuzot in places where they may legitimately be unwelcome or outsiders, it feels lazy and ungrateful not to hang one on my apartment. I obviously want you to feel safe, Stephanie. You are hardly a closeted Jew. And if this is a real fear for you, I respect it. At the same time, I hope you'll think about hanging one for all the Jews who had to hide their Jewishness. Thanks for everything, guys. I wish I had a mill to throw your way. Sadly, we public school teachers don't bring home the big bucks. But I appreciate your podcast so much. Yours, Alicia Zimmerman. Whoa. (laughs) Guilt drop. I like that Jericho sass, Alicia. Uh, no, this is a good point. This is all, I take this all in. I mean, like, again, I will say I never really thought about it. I just, like, didn't have a mezuzah. I didn't put it up. I guess my sister-in-law reminds me that she did get me a mezuzah. It's one of the things where they take the glass that you break at your wedding and then they, you, like, send it back to the place mm-hmm. and they put it into a mezuzah. It's really pretty. I just, I don't so it's know. sitting there alone in I a box. I think it's probably- <laughs> is it in your apartment or is it, like, stored at your parents' house? I actually don't know. I just, I mean, I, I, it's interesting because I, 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 like, I will continue to maintain that I did never really thought much about this, but now I am being forced to think about it a lot, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate this letter from Alicia. Hashtag, hashtag do it for Alicia.
and Stephanie's contemplating moving to a an Episcopalian <laughs> podcast <laughs> where people would just be nice and not it's give Jesuitical. Uh, <laughs> right. You're today. listening, and you need a fourth host. Stephanie Butling oh. is right here for you. So to remind you for our donor drive, which I guys, I'd really like to end it this week. I would like everyone who's listening to this show who hasn't given to give something, whatever you think this show is worth, whether it's a dollar eighty or one hundred eighty or seventy two. Go to tabletmag.com/slash/donate. Give something, and remember, put Team Liel, Team Mark, or Team Stephanie. If Stephanie loses, she'll get that mezuzah. If Liel loses, he'll go on a Belgian sensitivity course expedition where he has to meet with the Belgian consulate. And the Belgian euthanasia specialist. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> they might kill you, Liel. They, they might, might actually offer you euthanasia. If I lose, I have to actually pay for the movies instead of sneaking in. No, you have to pay for all of us I to go to the movies. Everyone to I'm getting an extra movie. large popcorn Guys, and you get free refills um, on. My Let's... kids love a lot of candy. Oh my god! Oh, you—they love the six-dollar candy. That's just freaking great. I let's want candy. Out. I need. I need like the the butter and the sweetness. So the point. Like a, let's a go out cola. in style, guys. Here, let's let's go out with a bank. Let's let's make oh, the yeah. last week the greatest last the week greatest ever last week ever. So the point drive. is, look, you got to join Hannah Gitterman and Edie Goldman and Leslie Hyman and the great. This is the best name of the week, Brad Gornstein. Ooh, hi, Brad. Be like Brad Gornstein, who I I picture as a muscular. I think he lettered in football. In high, in, in high school. When he got to college, he didn't quite make the team, so he played ultimate. Mm-hmm. But he was good. He was ultimate? Ultimate Frisbee. Do you go from football to ultimate Frisbee? Yeah. Don't you just go to like club football? No, no, no. Touch These days football? a lot of people do. You want to be like Brad Gornstein, tabletmag.com slash donate. Let's do it. I think I think Nike, t- like Nike, just just, <laughs> just do it already. All right. Um, <laughs> that's a Jewish Nike. Just do it. No. Just, just do it already. Hey J Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week is Kevin Bigos. He's a journalist and the author of Tasting the Past, The Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. Where are you right now? I'm in Florida. How is it? 
uh, super hot. I wish I was in a nice, cooler place. Yeah, we were expecting Napa or Chianti or something like that for you. Well, you know, this whole book started in an Amman Jordan hotel room, so I kind of took a roundabout way to my wine book. Can you tell us that story? I mean, the first, like, the opening pages of the book are just so kind of in, like hilarious and, and intense. Will you tell us how you went from being just like a, a you know a journalist who spent a lot of time in the Middle East? Like, how did you how did you decide to write a wine book? You know, it all started with that hotel room. I was in Amman, Jordan, doing a completely other story. I was tired. It was the end of the day. There was this little unusual bottle of wine from Cremason Monastery and Winery in Bethlehem, and I never drink wine or liquor from hotel mini bars because it's always terrible, especially in the Middle Eastern countries, you know, Arabic countries that where it's supposedly banned. But it was so unusual that I tried it. I didn't know that monks were still making wine in 2008. And it was a really nice wine. And it turned out they were using these strange grapes, uh, Hamdani and Jandali and Baladi grapes, which I'd never heard of either. So that just obsessed me for years because I couldn't find out anything about them. Um, that's how it all began. And so you wrote a piece for us, a tablet magazine, um, a couple of weeks ago, which which is you know part of, of of this book, which is completely fascinating. Apropos these grapes, saying that these were the the real kind of native grapes that that you know hit the scene much 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 before you know the Cabernet that we know today, and yet here we are in Israel today making all these French grapes. T- tell us, first of all, what happened to these native grapes? And second of all, why do we only hear about the French and not about the, uh, the local Canaanite fair? Well, the native grapes were widely used up until probably r- around the time of the, uh, the Muslim conquest. But even after that, they stayed. Uh, you know, Jews and Christians in the region kept making them, but not to the same level as the French or the Italians or anything like that. So there are references of like a, a rabbi in Jerusalem uh, mentioning grapes, Jandali and Hamdani grapes in the 1500s, as saying wine was being made from these two types of grapes. So we're, you know, from genetic testing and historical records, we're sure that people kept making wine, but nobody really paid attention to it because the French and the Italians and the Greeks got all the attention. Before we carry on this history, can I... Can I uh ask you to be Mr. Obnoxious Wine Guy and tell us about Jindali and Hamdani, about their, what kind of f- flavor do they hit the yeah, palate what the with? What are the What has uh, the bouquet? Yeah. I want the word, you know, ma- word mouthfeel. And, and terroir, yeah. if you could work terroir in, we'll be very grateful. To me, they're more aromatic than a Riesling. They're, they're lighter white wines, but uh, kind of with more flowery and grapefruit and lemony notes. Than, than you'd find in most Rieslings. I find, and a lot of other people find, they go very well with Middle Eastern foods. Yotamat Lingi is a big fan, the, uh, the great London chef. Well, that sounds, you know, that sounds lovely. But then you're right, to, to get back to the historical thing, you're right that these lovely grapes that you so lovingly just described uh, face somewhat of a hurdle, right? When, when the first kind of uh, modern Jewish migration back to Israel starts around the late 19th century, uh, many of these cats are being uh, paid for by the Baron de Rothschild, uh, who says something along the lines of, well, you know, if you're going to start a wine industry, uh, Cabernet, s'il vous plaît. Basically, you know, it's a really funny twist because he was a great, from a great winemaking family. He made huge investments in, 
agriculture in the late 1800s in, in the Holy Land and started the first large-scale wineries in hundreds of years. But he wasn't interested in the local grapes. Um, you know, there's a little backstory here that the French were trying to recover from the phylloxera plague, which had wiped out all their vineyards in the 1870s and 80s. So he was looking for new places to replace, you know, the, the vines that had died in France. So all over the Mediterranean, the French turned to other places and replanted their French vines. So it's wine colonialism. A little bit, you know, it's funny. They Believe it or not, they turned to Algeria, too. Algeria was a big... Uh, they. Since Algeria was a French colony, they were allowed to grow the grapes there and then press them and ship the wine to France and still call it French wine. One of my favorite parts of your book came at the very end, and you're telling this this story that really is about um, colonialism and engineering and reverse engineering and, and how much how much we intrude on what otherwise would be native grapes. And then it kind of concludes by saying, now these tech dweebs out in Silicon Valley are taking it a step further and trying to engineer our wine experience in ways that are completely divorced from the land entirely. Can you Can you tell us about some of those ridiculous examples you talk about at the end of the book? Yeah, people, you know, scientists and chemists realize that the flavors all are from particular chemicals. So theoretically, you should be able to manufacture a wine from no grapes, just alcohol and, you know, water and different chemical flavors. And in theory, you can do that. Um, you know, the early reviews are not that great with how it tastes, but also they're not that terrible. You can probably make a, you know middling cheap wine uh, with no grapes whatsoever, which I just think makes no sense at all. And then there uh, was the company that said that if you sent them a DNA swab, they would <laughs> it would tell oh, you what, yeah. what wine you'll like? Yes. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that either. <laughs> you know, complete marketing insanity. Right. So I'm 98% Ashkenazi Jew and 36% Merlot? <laughs> Basically. And, and I have a really strong feeling they were not going to come back and tell you you should drink uh, Hamdani and Jandali. And Jandali. Because, because, <laughs> they're not a, because they're not even aware of those grapes. So how do we incorporate these grapes into our lives? How do we break out of the like Merlot, Pinot Noir, Big Cab? Like how do we expand our horizons? Well, there are a few wineries in Israel now using these new grapes. And there's uh, a scientist at Ariel University, Shivi Dori, who did a whole nationwide survey. And he found about 20 regional local wine grapes uh, that had potential for making wine, both red and white. I just think more people, it's really, I think it's a great story. You know, plant them and promote them. And who wouldn't want to drink the native wines, wine grapes of the Middle East? I don't know. I, I, I like my wine synthesized from chemicals and then and then dyed color to look uh, to, to, ma- to to match your DNA to look, profile to look grapey yeah. and match my DNA profile. Um, Kevin, you you as a Gentile of the week, of course, have the prerogative of asking us uh, a question. This panel of Jewish experts did you did you come prepared with a question for us? I did, and this might be you know you might be able to guess this, but I know it's kind of a famous old question. But this phrase, you know, of drinking until you don't know the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. It seems to be saying just, you know, drink till you fall down. But is it a little more complicated than that? Uh, there, This is actually something we've discussed. Basically, you're saying, are, are you asking us, are Jews big drinkers? Is I mean, is that is that what, what you're asking us? No, I'm asking whether that particular, I, I, isn't it? Um, That's Purim, yeah. Yeah, for the yeah, holiday for of Purim, Purim, we're supposed to drink until we can't even understand the name Haman when it's when it's read from the, from the Megillah. But isn't it that we can't tell between good and evil? Like we just sort of 
accept everything. That was exactly my question, whether it was really about drinking or whether it was more emotionally getting into a state, because the little I researched it said, you know, uh, Maimonides seemed to say, well, you know, drink until you fall asleep, and, you know, that's enough. Well, the the kind of interpretation that I've always heard, and I, I just kind of went on, you know, Talmud.org on my phone to make sure that I was... Uh, that I was actually remembering it correctly. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is kind of a, a metaphysical explanation here, which is it's not just you have to get blackout drunk because that's how real joy occurs, as as we all know. It's also, you know, the notion that miracles happen all of a sudden. They happen in the sort of kind of divine, wildly ecstatic way. And and you have to accept that on this holiday, which is why it's a really good idea to literally let go of your senses. Be in that space where you're ready for whatever surprises the cosmic spirit has for you. And, and wine is good for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. That but really I should fun. add that... Um, you know, for Jews, Purim is an increasingly popular holiday. I think it's done a lot more in America now than it was 50 or 75 years ago when it's it Halloween is, with booze and stuff. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we realized that there were there are better holidays than just Hanukkah and Passover. There's one where we drink even more than four cups of wine. And culturally, it has become our um, our go get drunk holiday. I mean, interestingly, I have never been to a Purim party where people got completely obliterated often because the porn parties I've been at, you know, either they're they're tied to the Megillah reading and it happens at sundown and maybe they're at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or 7. It, it, I've never been at the one where like at one in the morning people are falling over the sofas unable to get up. I think at like really religious ones, that's when I think you our just fr- let our, loose. Our friends in Chabad right now are making a note to invite you Invite over. Oppenheimer, yeah. <laughs> but it's a very good question. And, and Purim as a holiday is one that has... I think Americans in particular have not really figured out what it's going to be because historically, you know, my wife will say that when she was growing up on the Lower East Side, when you went to a Purim party in costume, you went as a character from, from the Megillah. From the Megillah. You went as Esther or Haman or Ahasuerus. And or now Big of, Tan or Terish. That's right. Cool dudes. And now, of course, people just treat it as at a lot most synagogues, they treat it as Halloween and the kids go as like a firefighter or a mutant ninja turtle or whatever. <laughs> and that you know, my wife finds this completely blasphemous. Or or Gal Gadot. Yeah, that's or Gal Gadot. Right. The, the, it is a holiday in flux. But we promise uh this this coming, this coming Adar uh, to make an effort to have some Jindali or Khamdani uh, if yes. we could find them. Yes, absolutely. We will be drinking. We will be drinking native grapes. Kevin, thank you for being our Gentile of the week. Thank you. It was a great honor. Thank where, you. Where do you encourage people to buy your book? Do you have a favorite uh, a favorite website? Uh, well, just my name, KevinBigos.com, but all, any independent bookstore you okay. know, in uh, New okay. York or anywhere else. So. Kevin Bigos is a journalist, the author of Tasting the Past, The Science of Flavor, and The Search for the Origins of Wine, which we encourage you to buy at an independent bookstore near you. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.
Uh, Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I sure do. And it's such a grown-up Mazel Tov, I had to write it down just to make sure I get it right. So my Mazel Tov is to my dear friend Ilana Marcus on securing the Democratic nomination for civil court judge. She uh, is running on a post. Uh, she will not be on the ballot on the September 13th primary, but she will be a judge. And I'm sorry, but that is the most grown-up job I have ever you know, heard of. Uh, uh, my job is to make jokes in the podcast, and <laughs> hers is to adjudicate. And you know what? There's no person out there who I'd rather uh, be judgy, uh, and and I think she'll be a terrific. You're doing what you're called judger. to do. She will be doing what she is called. Judge is and gonna judge. I'm so happy that that she is the one judging, and I'm the one <laughs> making Meowschwitz jokes on the podcast. <laughs> Insulting Belgians as it should on a be. Podcast. Stephanie. First of all, I want to say that Fiddler on the Roof got extended. Yes, it did till through, October. Through something. October, yeah, through October twenty fifth. And if you're in New York before then, you can see it. It's like was totally sold out through August, and then they pushed it. They extended it. We're so excited for our friends over there. I'm gonna like I I like these like double and triple muscle tubs that I've been doing. This is a bit of an old one. I have a new baby cousin, baby second cousin, once removed. My co- um, Josh and Elizabeth, they had their second child, baby Jake, about a month ago, and we weren't recording. And we did, like we went that month without recording. He's so cute. Baby Jake, Aww. love you. Baby Mazel Jake. Mazel to big sister Lily. She's the one I did the baby naming for last oh, summer. Oh, yes, that's She's right. turning two. It's a t- the cutest Is little Is the baby fam. a Jacob or a Jake? He's a Jacob. He's a Jacob. That's, baby Jake. That's nice. That's nice. It's nice to have the dignified full name and then the the the, the nickname. Cool, cool American. Cool, yeah. Cool American, American hipster nickname. name. That's awesome. And Mazel then I also have a shout out to my girl, Kayla Roby, who is an honorary Jew who does so much to promote this podcast. It's obscene. She'll text me and she'll be like, I got three new people to listen to your podcast this week. And I was like, I don't think I did that. So thank you. Kayla Roby. She was Kappa president after I was. So yeah. You, you handed her the gavel of presidency? Yes, I did. Was there a ceremony when you handed down the presidency? No, I basically gave her a really big binder. And I was like... <laughs> Like, you're going to get a lot of emails. The passing of the binder. <laughs> yeah. It's now a Dropbox folder. Uh, my Mazel Tov this week, I'm, one, I'm going to hand off to our listener, Alan Perez. He wanted to give a Mazel Tov to Gabe Levin of Oak Park, Illinois, who recently signed with B'nai Herzliya to play basketball Fantastic. in Israel. Hometown team. Uh, Gabe is a recent graduate of Long Beach State and is just is is rocking the asphalt in Israel, probably as we speak. Uh, my Mazel Tov is to... It's charming that you think we play basketball in asphalt. <laughs> in it's very hot asphalt. Yeah. It sticks to your shoes. <laughs> On camels, it's like, you know. It's yeah. polo. It is. And my and my personal Mazel Tov is to Michael Schulson and Emma Green. I've talked about them before. This is a couple uh, whom I've had the great honor of of introducing. It is um, it is a shidduch. Uh, I knew them both. He was a student of mine, and she was a friend of mine. And though they lived many hundreds of miles apart, I thought they should meet. And they got married Sunday night. I was there. Uh, took... Took Rebecca, my eldest daughter, as my date, and we rocked out to this incredible bluegrass band that did a Hava Nagila to end all Hava Nagilaim. And it was an amazing wedding between two people who I think will have a wonderful, wonderful future. It was a true honor to be there, and I send them big mazels, and, uh, and I'm so glad that, uh, that they're moving to New York. How many more do you need until you go straight to heaven? A very important question. Um, this is setups. This, I mean, it's right. three, right? So the 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 tradition is the lore is that if you make three uh, shidduchs, that you have a place in the world to come. Here three is the is thing: such an un-Jewish number, though. I, well, it is. It, it is. Make it like Jewish eighteen. 
Well, right. you need three for for benching after a meal, right? What else isn't isn't there something else? Three is a, totally a typological number. But here's the thing: is there a number? Is there like a time frame for this? So, well, after seven years of marriage, like you get the check mark. Because if you make the shit up and then they get divorced <laughs> at eight months, yeah, I don't that? think you should get it. Right. Well, divorce does throw throw a wrench in, in the in the works. These guys are knocking. So let me back up and say I think I have two, but Sid would say I have one because there is um, because Chloe and Matt. Sid claims that it was her idea to set them up and. I believe that we we jointly said, oh, you know who Chloe would be good with is this guy we just met named Matt. So if I get a piece of that one, then I have two. I'm two thirds the way there. I mean, you at age three percent at age forty four, I'm two thirds of the way there. <laughs> so, um, but if I don't get that one, then I still have two to go. But I'm I'm always there for it. I want to make more more uh, more shidduchs. It's uh, it's something. So I So if enjoy. you have a lovely son or daughter, really, e- if you have email a son, <laughs> Moppenheimer at at tabletmag.com. But really, honestly, guys, I got a lot. I have a lot of women in uh, in the Rolodex. I need some binders men. full of women. I need some men for. I have a lot of straight women, and I need some straight men for them. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. You can ask for our newsletter by putting newsletter in the subject line of an email. You can also ask a question that we will answer, perhaps, on Ask Unorthodox, our weekly column in Tablet Magazine. We often come to you live. To book us email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, the Jewish way, at tabletmag.com. And you can wear and carry unorthodox. Hit up bit.ly slash unortho shirt for all sorts of affordable swag. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Telushkin, and Noah Levinson, who also edits the show. This week with editing help from Sophia steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton, and our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Aaron Potek of The Gathering in Washington, D.C. I gave him a seat in my Uber after that wedding, and he gave me bucket loads of learning in exchange. We record at Argo Studios, which is very much out of Egypt, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>